The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Traditional gospel lesson for the Sunday after Easter is the story of Doubting Thomas. And that's the one we're going to take a look at here tonight. And what we'll do is uh, we're going to look at the story of Doubting Thomas. I'm going to give you, read through the text and give you some kind of commentary along the way. We'll do a little bit of a character study on who exactly Thomas is according to the Gospels and church history. And then we'll see what exactly that means for our lives here today as 21st century Christians. How the doubt of Thomas relates to us here today. Okay, so here we go with the text, John 20, verses 19 to 31. We read, On the evening of that first day of the week, this is Easter Sunday evening, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. They're still living in fear at this point prior to a resurrected Lord. To the degree that you believe Jesus is resurrected, your life will be fearless. To the degree that you believe Jesus is resurrected and therefore God and Lord in your life, it, it, it proportionately uh, eliminates fear from your life. They still were living in fear behind closed locked doors. Jesus came to them and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This, is, this will be a recurring theme. One of the greatest things that God can say to mankind is we have peace with one another because by nature, we know God is there and our consciences tell us we don't have or deserve peace with him. We've done stuff wrong and therefore we don't deserve to be in relationship and in the presence of a holy God. And so we're naturally anxious about all the mistakes that we've made. So one of the greatest things God can say to you is, no, it's okay. Peace be with you. I have given you peace. After he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side, the marks of his crucifixion. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Odd that he says it again, right? It's because Jesus knows humans so well. And we have a tendency to hear something that is good for us and immediately walk out the door and forget it. Uh, those of you who uh, raise children or teach children know this really well. A child, uh, according to secular psychology, a child needs somewhere between five and eight words of affirmation for every negative word, right? We're more inclined to doubt than we are to believe. And so God continuously reaffirms to us, no, you have peace with me. He says it two sentences later. Why? Because they need to hear it two sentences later. Peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed upon them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That might sound weird. This is the Lutheran, Lutherans call this the ministry of the keys. Sometimes I'll get questions about why do you as a pastor say in the confession and absolution that I forgive you? Uh, why don't you just say God forgives you? It's because of this thing right here called the ministry of the keys. It means that when a believer announces something to somebody else through Christ, through the words of Christ, it's just as good as if Christ said it to that person themselves. See, in the New Testament church, 
where we live by the Spirit, God generally operates not immediately, but immediately. Okay? He doesn't operate just lightning bolts down directly the way he spoke to like an Abraham, but he speaks to us by his Spirit through one another because his, our spirit, his Spirit lives in one another. Okay? So he wants us to announce forgiveness to one another on behalf of God. And he says, in the same way, if another believer tells you you are forgiven for your sins, accept that as Jesus Christ saying it to you yourself. And the same is true if you do not forgive someone, if they're not repentant of their sins, and you say you are not forgiven for your sins because you're not repentant, that's just as if Jesus himself were saying it. That's how seriously we take the words and actions of our fellow believers. Okay? It's the ministry of the keys. Uh, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came that first Easter Sunday evening. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand right into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, so the Sunday evening after Easter, like we're celebrating here, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. There he's saying it again. Why? Because we're so dense, we need to hear it constantly. You're forgiven. I love you. I accept you. I've paid for your sins. We need to hear it constantly because we don't believe it otherwise. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. It's one of the coolest confessions in all of the Bible and we'll explain it in a second. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. That's good, but blessed are those who have not seen, this is you and me, and yet have still believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. John is basically saying, if I recorded everything that Jesus ever said and did, which was very, all very impressive, but we struggle enough to read our Bibles as it is, if he had made it you know, a thousand times longer, it would be that much more difficult. So he just condenses it down into the most essential summary for salvation. These things, what, this is maybe the best statement of the purpose of the Bible, these things are written, not that you might be good people, not that you might just have some sense of self and meaning in life, although it does all those things. Why is the Bible written? By the way, every confirmation student I think I've ever taken through, when I first start them off and ask them, what's the purpose of the Bible? They always get this wrong. Every single one of them tells uh, me, it's, it tells me how to live a good life to please God. Nope, that's not the purpose of the Bible according to its own writing. Uh, there's a lot of moral people who have never read the Bible before. Yes, it does give you some encouragements along the way, but that's not the purpose of the Bible. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Um, 
I mentioned that I think doubting Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap, and here's, here's the reason why. It's not because he didn't doubt, because he did. It's that he wasn't the only one who doubted. See, yeah, he doubted because he wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday evening and didn't get to see a resurrected Lord. And then he said, no, unless I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands. But all the other disciples and all the other followers were the exact same way. They didn't believe until the resurrection either. And so I'm not sure doubting Thomas is a fair name. It's also, it's a little on the nose. I mean, if, you, if, if I was, if, if let's say you came up to me one day and I had really bad breath, and you always referred to me, to everyone else from there on out, as Pastor Stanky Breath Hine. And it was, more than that, it was immortalized in a book for thousands of years. And everybody always, oh yeah, that's Pastor, you're the great, 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 great grandson of Pastor Stanky Breath. Like, it's, it's, it's a little unfair. Again, in part because it's just highlighting the worst, in part because he's not the only one who's doubting. I have a slightly different theory about the nature of Thomas, and I think he's a fascinating character. First of all, we're told in Greek his name is Didymus, which means twin. In uh, Aramaic, the Hebrew language of the time, the Jewish language of the time, he even went by Toma or Thomas, which also means twin. Most Bible scholars will tell you that almost undoubtedly Thomas was one of two twins. Now, most twins that I know have one or two kind of mindsets about their, their, twin, their twinliness, their twindom. Uh, they either kind of embrace the idea of being twins and want to do everything exactly alike and dress alike and, and, and it's adorable and all that stuff, or they want to be their own people and want to do their own thing. And this one person does this, they zig, so I'll zag. And I think that's the mentality of Thomas. In fact, I think you see that uh, both in church history and uh, in, in the Bible itself. Let me give you a couple quick examples. Uh, the kind of unique and individualistic nature of Thomas. First of all, in John 11, uh, we looked at it about a month ago, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. That's the John 11. At the beginning of that chapter, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send Jesus word that Lazarus is sick and dying and, and come visit us. Jesus, we're told, waits two more days, and then he tells his disciples, okay, we need to cross the, the Jordan and go back over to Judea. And the rest of the disciples say, Jesus, I don't know that that's such a good idea. Last time you were down there, they tried to stone you and kill you. Maybe we should just steer clear of Judea for a while. Who was the one divergent opinion? John tells us, Thomas said, guys, let us all go that we may die with him. He's not saying he doesn't think it's a, a kind of a bad idea. <laughs> we're going to die, he's thinking, but he's willing to go. Everybody else says this. Thomas says, nope, if he's really our Lord, if he's really our master, we got to do what he says. We got to go with him. Otherwise, we can't call him our Lord and master. Okay, part and parcel of being a disciple and calling Jesus Lord or master is doing what he says. So if that means dying, that means dying. Let's do it. Thomas got that. Uh, another aspect of Thomas, again, the story of the first Easter evening. You'll notice how odd it is that all the disciples are there minus one, uh, Judas Iscariot, obviously, is gone by this point. So the other ten are there, but somebody's missing. Thomas isn't there. There's no, there's no NFL Sunday night football back at this time. There's no Oscars. What on earth could Thomas possibly be doing when all the rest of them are right there, uh, you know, grouped together? Thomas is doing his own thing. The Bible doesn't tell us what he's doing. All we know is 
He's his own unique individual doing whatever. Finally, church uh, history and tradition tells us that at the beginning of the Christian church, all the disciples were essentially sort of missionaries because there isn't much of a church at the time. Uh, We sometimes think of the Apostle Paul as the great early church missionary. He was a great missionary to the Gentiles, but all the disciples played some work in in creating the church and forming the church and ministering and evangelizing. Church history tells us that all the disciples went in this direction. Towards the Mediterranean world, they spread out and did mission work, except for one. Thomas went through the Parthian Empire and over into India. In fact, we, this is fascinating to me too, we have some record of uh, the 16th century explorers from England who went over to India to, you know, this is the age of imperialism, to witness to the, the pagan Indians and they get over there in 16th century and they say, we're here to evangelize you, here's the gospel. And some of the Indians there say, we already have the gospel. They say, what do you mean you already have the gospel? We're here to give you the gospel. Well, over a thousand years earlier, Thomas brought us the gospel. Um, in fact, I would, I, I'm not going to get into it too far, but the early Gnosticism, which is a heresy that sweeps into the early church, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced is a combination of the gospel of Christianity in the Eastern world combined with Eastern religion that migrates its way back into the Mediterranean world. Why? Because... I mean, he wasn't the the problem with it, but Thomas went and evangelized to the people there. The rest of the disciples went that way. Thomas said, I'm going. It's almost like Thomas said, you know what, that first Easter Sunday evening, I almost missed it. I almost missed the resurrected Lord. I am now going to make it a personal mission to go to everyone else in the world, in the known world, that might possibly miss it and make sure they hear that their Savior is resurrected from his grave. Thomas is a fascinating uh, character, and yes, he does doubt, but he doesn't really doubt any more than any of the other early believers, okay? So, uh, let's talk about uh, the situation on that second, that Sunday after Easter. Um, Again, none of the other followers of Christ really were buying into his resurrection prior to the resurrection. The women on Easter Sunday morning went there, why? To finish the burial process. They didn't come there expecting to see a risen Lord. They came with stuff to, to finish the hasty burial that took place on Friday evening. The disciples did not really believe. They were behind locked, closed doors until they saw the resurrected Lord. Jesus' own brothers We get record in the Gospels of four of Jesus' brothers. Two of them are writers of New Testament Scripture, Jude and James, James the bishop of the early Christian church. His own brothers did not believe he was who he said he was until after his resurrection. The resurrection is the quintessential miracle. Everything else in the Bible uh, comes after you recognize that Jesus has risen from the grave because as the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. The resurrection is the absolute necessary proof that we all need. Now, it's fascinating to me also that Jesus takes the time to make a personal visit on behalf of Thomas. God ministers to us basically in two ways. 
One way is collectively, as we gather together as a church, where two or three come together, there I am with them, and it's impossible, impossible to truly know God unless you know the people who he's put his spirit into. So he ministers to us to the church, but he also ministers to us on a very personal level. And by that I mean he gives every single one of us exactly what we need in order to truly believe and overcome our doubts. Okay, so all the other disciples have already seen Jesus resurrected from the grave, but Thomas didn't. So what does God do? Jesus comes one week later and makes a special trip to minister personally just to Thomas. God knows exactly what you need all the time, and he will never stop to give it to you. Now, sometimes we think, well, for me to really believe, for me to overcome my fears, this is what I need. But who knows you better? Do you know yourself better? Does God, if he is an infinite God, know you better? He knows exactly what you need and gives you exactly what you need. God always ministers to us personally. What did Thomas need? He said, unless I get to put my own hands in Jesus' wounds, in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. So one week after Easter, Jesus shows up miraculously and he says, go ahead, Thomas. He could have, by the way, he could have just gone up to him and smacked him in the face and said, how real do I feel to you now? How resurrected does this feel? But, he just says, touch my wounds. Um, and at that point, by the way, this is Caravaggio's painting called The Incredulity of Thomas. It's the most famous painting of the Sunday after Easter. And I love the picture of it because if you look at Thomas, he's not actually looking into the wound. First of all, that might have freaked him out a little bit. I'm pretty sure I would have passed out if I was sticking my hand into somebody else's side like that. But... Look at the look on his face. It's almost as if he's starting to comprehend what a resurrected Lord and Savior actually means in his life. And it's such a form of, it's such an incredible thing. It's so overwhelming, he's almost about to pass out. And Thomas then gives one of the greatest confessions I mentioned in the Bible where he says, my Lord and my God. Um, see, Thomas knew that Jesus was his Lord Lord was a commonly used term uh, for Jesus and really, honestly, for others in, in the New Testament. Lord is just in general a word that means my master. But as it relates to Jesus and as it relates to the, the Messiah, a Lord is somebody who is sent by God, divinely appointed to come and be the Messiah for mankind. It was customary for the disciples to refer to Jesus not only as rabbi but as Lord. What was unique, what we don't see throughout Scripture commonly is people straight out, flat up, calling Jesus, my God. That's the resurrection, that is where it finally clicked for Thomas. Without the resurrection, he would not have believed. Without the resurrection, you and I would not have believed. Without the resurrection, we'd still be stuck in our sins. The resurrection is the proof that God accepted Jesus' payment for our sins. Now, here's the interesting thing to me today. Thomas was willing to call Jesus my Lord, and the big step was to now call him my God. That's what all the non-Christians of the world struggle with, by the way. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu or Buddhist, if you're uh, Jewish or, or Muslim, if you're Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, 
or if you're agnostic or atheist or any other variation, the one commonality, be commonality to, between all of them or amongst all of them is the fact they don't believe Jesus truly is God from all eternity. They don't doubt his historicity. They don't doubt his ability to teach. They don't doubt his civil rights movement. What they doubt is that he's true God from all eternity. So the rest of the world might be able to say to some extent, my Lord, but they're not saying my God. I think that for 21st century Christians in America, the exact inverse is the main temptation. I think Christians in 21st century America are very inclined to say, ah, my God. But I don't know if I want to make him my Lord. I don't know if I want him as my master. In other words, let me put this differently. Uh, somewhere near 70 to 80% of the people in our country today profess that they are Christian. We are by far the most Christian uh, country, if you want to call it that, on the planet uh, by a ton, by a ton. We have something like 240, 250 million self-identified Christians in our country. The next largest is Brazil, which has about 140 million Christians. We are by far the most self-professed Christian country. And yet, while we are very quick to say, yeah, I'll call Jesus God, Jesus is my God, we're actually significantly behind a lot of other places when it comes to treating Jesus as my Lord, my master, the guy whom I'm willing to follow anywhere, even death. Um, let me give you a couple examples of this, just to show you what I'm talking about. The United States, believe this number or not, the United States produces over 90% of the world's pornography. The most self-professed Christian country on planet Earth by a mile produces over 90% of the world's pornography, and we consume the vast majority of it also. Speaking of consumption, we consume more everything than everybody else in the world. We consume, by far, more of the natural resources and energy resources of the world than anybody else. We consume more food than anybody else, and we waste more food than anybody else. We buy more clothes than anybody else and have nicer clothes than everybody else. We consume more entertainment in the form of video games and music and movies and toys for our kids and electronics and appliances. We consume more than anybody. Is there anything inherently wrong with consumption? No. However, if you consume worldly things at a rate significantly more than everybody else seemingly in the world, you probably have a right to say maybe we're a little obsessed with this world. The most self-identified Christian country on planet Earth is arguably more obsessed with this life in the here and now than anybody else in the world. That doesn't work. That's at odds. Uh, furthermore, another potentially good thing that can become a bad thing, America by far is the most individualistically minded country on planet Earth. Um, we, now, there's nothing wrong with being a unique individual. Thomas was a unique individual. However, it can become very clear when your, your, your own unique individual can turn into just self-focus very quickly, where everything is just strictly about you, which is the definition, really, of sin. Everything's about me. That individualistic mindedness uh, doesn't jive with the fact that we are self... We call Jesus God, but we really want what we want. And my life is about my hopes, my dreams, my wants, my needs, and just me. Um, Jesus is our God, but are we willing to follow him as Lord? Uh, what would be the indicators? 
I think our time, you know, the finite resources that we have, you know the number one thing that people give as reason for lack of engagement in sp their spiritual lives? They just don't have enough time. Um, whether it comes to church engagement, when it comes to devotional lives, when it comes to prayer, I just, I don't have enough time to, to get it all in, so I don't. In, in other words, I, I have to, you only get, you know, however many hours during the week, you have to prioritize it. And for a lot of people who say, I'm a Christian, time just isn't one of them. It doesn't, it doesn't hit the top 10 things I need to do. Uh, our energy and our focus on ourselves. America is so individualistically minded that we say things like, I got to focus on me. I got to work on me. I got to be me. I got to do me. No other civilization in history has said stuff like that. That just utter self-focus. But we don't have energy for other people and other things and other service because we're just so consumed with ourselves the entire time. Uh, our money, our pleasure, our vices. We want to say, Jesus, yes, you're my God, but just I have so little pleasure in this world. Just let me do, let me keep a couple of the few things that, that make me happy in the here and now. And the thought of giving up things is sacrificial. Uh, it is almost foreign to us. In other words, the question is, if Jesus is God, but he isn't really our Lord in life, the doubt is, is Jesus really enough to satisfy us? If we really just did what Jesus said, would that make us happy and contented and secure and fulfilled and give us an identity? The fact that we don't just do what he says indicates to us that we don't really believe that. Jesus is our God, but we're not quite yet ready to live with him as our Lord and Master. So, the point is this. Humans are inclined to doubt. In, in a fallen world, we're inclined to doubt. Uh, some of us are inclined to doubt Jesus as true God. Some of us are willing every Sunday to confess, Jesus is my God, but then throughout the week, we're not fully ready to trust in him as our Lord and master and follow him wherever he tells us to go. And what do you do to overcome your doubts? You don't just say, don't doubt so much, although that, <laughs> you notice Jesus does do that to Thomas in the lesson. He does kind of scold him. And sometimes we need just kind of the cold bucket of water in the face to sober us up. And Jesus says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting me so much. Stop thinking that you know what is best for your life. Start trusting that the only reason I tell you to do things is because I know what's in your best interest in the long run. Sometimes that does help. But Jesus doesn't just tell him to stop doubting. He gives him evidence. You notice it's that Jesus, despite being true human, never once doubts his father. Believe that a human being who never actually he, he faces temptation just like all of us. He has questions uh, regarding his father's will at times in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's falling on his knees and saying, "Father, if this is the only way, I'll do it. But you know, if there's another way, please." But he never actually doubts. He always carries out his father's will. How does he do that? Because he's constantly practicing his spiritual disciplines. Um. When we practice our spiritual disciplines, we stop doubting too. Jesus is constantly praying. You notice sometimes he'll take an entire evening off and just tell his disciples, I got to go and pray. When was the last time you set aside like a half hour, let alone an evening, and just said, I just got to pray tonight? Tonight's the night of prayer. Um, Jesus is constantly studying the scriptures. I think sometimes we think 
it's like Jesus in his brain has like, uh, like a version app that he can just reference different passages all the time and, you know, keyword search and then he's got everything. Why does Jesus know his Bible so well? Because he constantly studied it from birth. He trusts God because he goes through the spiritual disciplines that God gives him like prayer and Bible study and worship and he follows his father's will, never doubting all the way to the cross to do what? To take care of your doubts and my doubts, to take care of your sins and my sins and not only to wash away the sins of our failing to trust our heavenly father but also to give us more reason and more evidence not to doubt. See, every doubt is essentially an expression of faith in something else. Um, so, for instance, if I go to a restaurant and I order one thing on the menu, if I order the pizza instead of the, you know, sandwich, what am I saying? I doubt that that sandwich is adequate to make me happy. I know pizza will make me happy. I'll just go with the pizza instead. Uh, if I go with one financial investor over another, essentially, yes, am I showing trust in one? Yes, but I'm doubting the other along the way. I'm saying, I don't think that you can deliver the goods the way that this one can. So in your life, when you and I sin, essentially when we don't follow Jesus' will, what are we saying? I don't really believe you can deliver the goods to make me secure, happy, contented, and fulfilled. So what does Jesus do? He gives us evidence to the contrary. There's two things that Thomas saw on the Sunday after Easter and both of them are necessary for us to believe. Sometimes I'll tell you, uh, I'm in the, in the habit of saying, Jesus' cross proves that he loves you, if you ever doubt that. Jesus' empty tomb, if he can rise from the grave, that proves he's powerful enough to help you. Stop doubting and believe. Well, Jesus does that in the flesh for Thomas and Thomas needs both of those things. Thomas needs, first of all, to see a resurrected Savior because that means he's powerful enough to do anything and it proves that he's really God and has the capacity to forgive our sins and has the capacity to order our lives in such a way that leads to our heavenly home and has the capacity to provide for all of our needs. He needs to see a resurrected Savior but you know, you know what he also needs to see? He needs to see a wounded Savior. Because even if God was powerful enough to help you, you'd have good reason to doubt that he would care enough about you to do so. But when Thomas sticks his hands into Jesus' wounds, this is proof positive, I love you. I was willing to go through this for you. I was willing to go through hell for you. And the thing that you and I need to see in order to trust Jesus more in our lives is to see a resurrected Savior and a wounded Savior. Let's look at that evidence ourselves in our lives. Stop doubting and believe. May God's peace be with you. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight we confess that much like Thomas, we struggle with doubting. Some of us here tonight struggle with trusting that you are actually God, that you have control over everything, uh, that you work all things out for our good, that you sustain the entire universe and provide for all of our needs. Um, and so we're very anxious, worried people who, who think we have more control than what we actually have and don't trust that you have the control that you say you have. 
Help us to see that you're God. Some of us here tonight struggle to follow your will. We have our pet sins and uh, our pet bad behaviors and we think that you and your will can't really deliver the goods when it comes to making us happy and contented in life. Help us to stop doubting and believe. Help us to see the power of your resurrection. Help us to see the love attached to your wounds for us and help us to believe. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.